My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for me. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. My guest today is Meg Levy. Meg is the head priest of the Stone Creek Zen Center in Sonoma County, California, and she has been practicing Soto Zen for over 30 years. She has also, over the past decade, pioneered the development of awareness practices in organizations um, around the world. As a senior teacher for Search Inside Yourself, the mindfulness-based emotional intelligence and leadership program that was created at Google, she has trained hundreds of other meditation and mindfulness teachers and impacted hundreds and hundreds more participants. She's also a professional coach specializing in working with executives who want to approach their leadership and their management and their work from a mindfulness perspective. I'll invite us and invite you to start where Meg asks us to finish today, which is an invitation for Meg to pay attention If there's any part of you who is in your life right now with a feeling of stress or depletion or burnout or a sense that there is something about your life or the world that just ain't right, and you might have lots of other voices in your head or around you telling you to keep pushing, to keep driving to keep working to make things better, to keep fixing or solving or saving or accumulating. And it's likely that those voices have helped you achieve some measure of success in some part of your life. But if you are feeling that burn, that sense of exhaustion or fatigue or overwhelm or even a hint that things could be different, this conversation is for you. It's actually quite a romp. We speak and play pretty deeply with some questions about what is reality and who are we in that and what is our role to play in that and how do we show up more with more awareness? How do we show up awake to what's actually happening? But the kernel at the heart of all that, the sort of pearl inside the shell of this conversation is the insight that if you can find a way to sit with yourself and be with yourself amidst all the noise and hurry and bustle of life, you might discover, or, or perhaps you will inevitably discover, that there is more to life and reality than our culture or our day-to-day living invites us to connect with. So this is a really fun, playful, deep, rich, and emotionally evocative conversation. All of it circling around that possibility that sitting in stillness, attending to what is without judging yourself or the world, simply noticing, can open whole new doorways of possibility in your life and the lives of those around you. So if that sounds interesting to you, if that sounds like it might just be an alternative to the stress, the overwhelm, the driving, the striving, the achieving, the failing, all of that story, then you're in the right place. So let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Meg has for us. Hi, Meg. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Hello, Andy. It's so nice to be here. It's really nice to be here with you. <laughs> um, I'm smiling right now because you uh, you and I just had a chance to be together and before the recording. And at the very end, you you generously and beautifully presence this reminder that like there are many people, many humans, many lives, our ancestors who have allowed this particular moment of us meeting and talking to be possible. And I'm just feeling really full with that. And uh, I thought I wanted I, that. I want to share that with everyone who might be listening. 
you know, like wherever you're hearing this, wherever someone's hearing this, you know, in their car or at home or on a walk or with someone else, that, that, that moment of being able to hear this conversation was also made possible by so many other people. And it's quite, quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. I find that uh, often very grounding to, to think about that, the teachers, ancestors, maybe a spiritual lineage, it may be a family lineage and mm-hmm. maybe some other discipline, but I think we don't, we don't think about that enough mm-hmm. and it helps us to be mm. present, I think, in a different way. Mm. Mm. Is there a particular ancestor or spiritual lineage that you feel in touch with right now that you want to speak to or name? Sure. I Well, in Zen, there's a lot of emphasis on lineage mm. and teaching sort of passed down from warm hand to, to warm hand. Mm. And so, you know, thinking about particular teachers have been close to and then their teachers um particularly uh, in this zen lineage i'm part of shinru suzuki roshi who came from japan to bring brings into the west and that had been a lifelong dream of his and then just mm. knowing it goes back and back and back and back and mm. back mm. and so that's uh just puts me in a big much bigger framework like on one hand there's more responsibility but also i get very small in that too <laughs> It's just a tiny, a tiny mm. person you know, moving it forward. But then also, um, you know, we talked when we were first talking about this conversation that being a mother was actually also very important to me. Mm. And I feel very much part of a matrilineal family lineage. Mm. And so I, I think about that also as I, when mm. I think about lineage. Mm. Mm. This image of, of a warm hand. Mm-hmm. passing something to another warm hand and, and the way that, I mean, we could take for granted, although maybe, maybe some people are doing this less so in the midst of all the, the social change and upheaval we're in right mm-hmm. now, but I was just in San Francisco last week and, mm-hmm. and, you know, in theory, we could have actually touched hands and mm-hmm. I wish we had, but, <laughs> but for, for, um, and say his name one more time. I don't want to say it wrong. The teacher oh. who came from Japan. Uh, Shinru Suzuki Roshi. Yeah. Shinru mm-hmm. Suzuki Roshi. He, I mean, he had to, the, the journey that he would have had to take mm-hmm. was very different to get to, to the, to that place where his warm hand could pass something to, to you and many others in that part of the world. And I mean, I just, there's actually, a, there's actually a really wonderful photograph of him in the Tokyo, I think Tokyo airport with his family, because he actually had kids <laughs> and, but he, he, where he's in his Japanese robes and traveling hat and they've given him flowers and his family is waving to him goodbye because he's coming here. Mm. So there's mm. uh, something about that um, mm. personal sacrifice to mm. to bring mm. to bring this here. Mm. Yeah. And I had a chance to read one of your essays. I believe it's mm. called "On Homemaking and Home Leaving," mm-hmm. which um, was released now a good good solid fifteen plus years ago in a book called "The Buddha's Apprentice: More Voices mm-hmm. from Young Buddhists." Mm-hmm. But um, I'm in touch with it now because you use the word sacrifice and, and you, it sounds like you really walked a emotionally intense and difficult journey to find your own way in Mm. to your identity as a practitioner and also as a mother, which is the other Mm -hmm. lineage you, you presence. And I wonder if we could play with that a bit, like how in this moment, how are you holding it? Or perhaps that story that you wrote about in your essay, what, how are, how are you connecting to those two lines and how they intersect? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, what's arising right now is actually an, an, an image of an intertwining because mm. that just about the time that Suzuki Roshi was coming from Japan to America, my mother at age 28 was going, actually she sailed out of Fort Mason in California and San Francisco to Japan <laughs> and ended up living in Tokyo for two years and encountering Buddhism and yoga and other practices and traveling around Asia. So they were, they were crossing in a way. Wow. And then when she brought that influence back very strongly to the small town in Texas where I grew up, that's just what I grew up around. And it was just totally out of place, but that was in my home. Mm. 
Mm. And mm. so then mm. eventually when I found my way to San Francisco and I was looking for a place to practice and I encountered the Berkeley Zen Center, you know, compared to other places I was looking at, some Christian, et cetera, just that aesthetic sense was really strong. Mm. So, mm. Um, and I say that uh, again, just following this idea of uh, the matrilineal lineage that I do feel like something was was passed on to me in various ways. So some mm. exposure to these practices, but also just that it's very powerful to be a mother mm. and mm. to um, yeah, experience what that's like to, to have a child. And I know that, that you also are a father. And I could under, when I did go to the monastery, I left graduate school. And I went to Tassajara, which is the, the monastic center of San Francisco Zen Center. And I could really see why someone would want to be celibate and fully monastic. Mm. But there's something about just focusing and not having those social obligations and being able to live really simply. And I, some part of me really felt that and was called by that and wanted to go very deep and just throw myself you know, mm. into that pool. And at the same time, I had always thought I would have children and my own experience, you know, with my mother and my grandmother, I, I felt like, oh, that's in me too. And so it was, um, it was hard for a while mm. that I, I was headed towards um, becoming a, an ordained Zen priest. And because of history and politics in Japan, the Soto Zen lineage actually is a married lineage. So Suzuki Roshi, as I said, you know, actually had a family. So that's unusual in Buddhism, mm. has its own wonderful aspects and complications. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. So it was actually, I actually did get married along the way, but then the choice was presented to me. Well, all right, but if you want to ordain now, you need to wait five years at least to have a child so mm. that you can really, mm. really, um, you know, immerse yourself in this. And I was, I think, 32 at the time. And I really kind of went to war with myself that the part said, oh yeah, you can do this. This is really important. Just ordain, you know, maybe you'll have a child later. Maybe you won't. It was really strong. But at the same time, there was a whole other really strong part <laughs> that mm. said, mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. You know, mm. that's too long to wait. You maybe you can have a child at 37, but maybe not. And I had a lot of internal struggle. Yeah. And uh had sewed robes and was just a couple of months beforehand before I was supposed to ordain. And I finally had to go to my teacher and just say, I can't do it. Mm. Mm. And it was very painful. But once it was clear, it was clear. Yeah. Yeah. I think you say something, I say something like, I like thought it was a fantasy of having children that I had to let go of, but actually it was mm-hmm. a fantasy of ordaining in this time in my life that I had to let go of. Yeah. And there was actually a moment in the essay that that brought me to the edge of tears where you went down to this Creek in the center and, yeah, and there was like a letting go of that one, mm-hmm. one life path to walk a different one that, that you encountered yeah. in that moment. I actually, I feel a little teary <laughs> myself mm. too right now that there, there was mm. something that, and, uh, yeah, I remember I, I had been in this meeting with the teacher, but everyone else was in the Zendo, you know, the meditation hall meditating, and you're supposed to go back. <laughs> but I, I didn't go back, and mm. I just walked down the path and again to the mm. Tassajara mm. Creek, and there was something about the the creek receiving me um, and just letting myself fully mm. wail, really, just mm. let, let that mm. go, let that, mm. let that be out. Mm. Mm. But now if we, if we sort of flash forward here, here you are now, if I'm, I'm getting the title right, the head priest of the San Francisco Zen Center, is that the right? No, 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 not quite. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm a head priest of a Zen Center in Sebastopol, California. Oh, okay. My mistake. Called, yeah. Yeah. Called Stone Creek. Stone Zen Creek. Center. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm just this in April stepping into that position. Mm. So it, I feel mm. like it's coming back full circle, even though I've been you know, functioning in the Dharma realm and as a Zen priest in various ways, it's not been my main focus for the last mm. decade or so, mm. but it's, it's now that that opportunity arose and I'm turning towards it. I, f- I feel really happy. 
yeah, like <laughs> it feels like a kind of home homecoming in a way. Yeah. Yeah. There's this sort of um, image I'm getting of of you sort of wailing and letting it go in the river, and then yeah. suddenly finding yourself downstream ten years later to kind of right. pick up something again that 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 was once thought gone. And yeah. now I don't know how old your daughter is exactly, but I'm assuming she's she's you know mm-hmm. older now. And the, this intertwining that you're speaking to, how are you holding that now as a, as both a priest and as a as a mother, what does that look like today? Yeah, I'll back up just one piece. I think there was one middle step we I should mention, which is I did end up receiving ordination when my daughter was two years old mm, mm, in two thousand three, mm. and it was actually my my husband at the time who was willing to say, you know, I'll I'll stay with her in the early mornings while you go and be in the zendo mm. six days a week. Mm. And so I ended up being able to do both, mm. um, which in a way was very rich and, and in a way very complicated, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I was able to train, you know, and be, be in residence full time and train as a Zen priest um, along the way before I ended up stepping out into the wider world. So, but just coming back. Yes. So yes, my daughter now is 21. And wow. off into her life. She's on her. Yeah. She's on on her on her journey, and that uh, interweaving. Um, it, it feels like a moment of um, you know there are no hard edges, but it definitely feels like a certain moment of a completion of a phase of life, mm. of mm. you know ra- raising a child and finding the way in my way in the world and learning a lot of things, and now having an almost adult daughter uh suddenly it's like okay looking forward the next few decades like how how do i really want to live Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how can i both i'm not going to disappear into the mountains i want to be available you know as 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 a mother and uh, be a, a place of refuge for her but at the same time i think there's a new possibility for turning that direction Beautiful. Yeah. I'm this might feel too pat. And so tell me if it is, but but there's I'm feeling kind of there's some wisdom I I am in touch with. There's something that that journey, the letting go and then the finding yeah. a new way in with support from your partner and that like there's something yeah. that had you accepted the pure binary, either I have to do this or I have to do that, would have been mm-hmm. lost. And I wonder if wonder if you could speak to that. What what has this journey taught you that had you chosen one path or the other as exclusive, mm-hmm. you might have missed? I think I think a comfort with messiness mm-hmm. and a lot of humility, mm-hmm. <laughs> first of all. And 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 that there are like both both that there are no binaries, you know, that people say, oh, practice can be anywhere. And that is true. And also a respect for the formal practice and that opportunity to go deep and not to minimize that either. Mm, and the mm. chances that I've had to step back and have that foundation, mm. but then being able to let go of that a little bit and mm. express more freely mm. um, and mm. look around in the Western world uh, that we're in right now. And what are the different influences and how can we weave that in? And then I, maybe I mentioned this in the, in that essay, but a really key moment for me during this process was that, you know, right after I said, I can't, I can't do it. And uh, then, you know, being at Tassajara and being there for the summer, and I always loved the forms mm-hmm. and Zen forms are fairly strict in in a way and kind of simple and austere, I think in a beautiful way, but I love the forms and I could, I could do the forms. You know? <laughs> I could be still, I could move a certain way. I could, do all of that. I think there's sort of an A plus student. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and didn't like them when people didn't do them right. And, you know, Mm. um, and after that, I had this moment, it was in the summer at Tassajara, and I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the forms. Mm. I didn't want anything to do with them. I didn't, you know, I went to, to the Zendo for Zazen meditation but then we, you know, we have something called service, which is chanting and bowing. And I used to really like that. And I left. And at that time, you know, wow. we had uh, lay sitting robes, these black, black robes, and I would not wear those. I'd put them on and take them off. And uh, 
what happened was when I let go of all of that, even rejected it, I found that I still wanted to sit. I still wanted to meditate. And the basic principles of Zen and Buddhism were still true for me. Mm, mm. And that gave me tremendous confidence mm. that I could let it all go, mm. let all, you know, any performance, any grasping, et cetera. And I could see what was still there. Mm. Um, mm. And so then, you know, I could bring, bring it back in. I do actually still love the forums <laughs> and the ceremonies and all yeah. of that, yeah. but I, it's more of a, an offering, a, a play, uh, a way of engagement, but I don't have to identify with them as strongly. Yeah. Well, there's, there's actually a quote on, which I'm now clear is not your, your current Zen center, but where you studied on the yeah. home of the San Francisco Zen center from Shunru Suzuki, mm-hmm. like this home quote that I've read, which is just, maybe I'll read it and see if it resonates with your, mm-hmm. your insight about holding this stuff lightly. Sure. But he says, without any intentional fancy way of adjusting yourself to express yourself freely as you are, is the most mm-hmm. important thing. Mm-hmm. And to make others happy, mm-hmm. you will acquire this kind of ability practicing Zazen. Mm-hmm. And is not some fancy special art of living. Mm-hmm. Our teaching is just to live always in reality in its exact sense. To make our effort moment after moment is our way. Mm-hmm. I, feel, I hear and you speaking that right now. Absolutely. And the basis of it is this formal practice where you tie your robes a certain way. You yeah get into your seat a certain way, you sit a certain way. And it's on then out of that, the spontaneity can come. Mm, mm. It's to me, Zen is, is almost so wild and direct <laughs> and formless <laughs> that you need a lot of form and a strong container to really hold that. Mm, mm, okay. mm, mm. If everything's just like, do whatever you want, like, you, you never, it's harder to get to those depths, mm. but if you're being held then what can emerge out of that? Mm, it's beautiful. So that kind of uh, sparks me to, we've sort of been, our gaze has been attuned towards your journey and the way mm-hmm. you're holding these forms and they're holding you and mm-hmm. the lineages and how you're holding them and them you. But then there's also like an outward gaze, which has shown up in some of the Dharma talks that you give online that mm-hmm. I've, I've had a chance to listen to. Um, and uh, I wonder, sort of, you talk about, for instance, the the these two pillars of wisdom and compassion, and mm. and uh, and how to stand on one of those pillars or both of those pillars as you look out at the world. And I'm just curious if you'd be willing in this current moment that we're in here together, mm. how are you holding with the the cries of the world, the pain of the world, the the sort of challenge and complexity and ambiguity of the world. Um, and what does that mean for you as a Zen practitioner to hold with that? Yeah, thank you. It's um, it's not an easy moment, is it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And in a way, we could say there, there are many moments in, in history that are not easy or many mm. situations, but there seems to be something particular in consciousness right now that's that's difficult. And... I think of, um, you know, as a framework, I think of the, the what are called the four Brahma Viharas or divine abodes as a, a framework that I find useful. And just in general, the, there's a, a loving kindness, just wishing people well, just cultivating that in mm. a daily way mm. Mm. <laughs> and for yourself mm. as well, you're included. Mm. Um, and then there is the uh, compassion. You know, so that's a, that's where they're suffering, being able from that place of wishing well to be with people in that difficulty mm. and feel that and wish them well, wish wish that that suffering be relieved and have that have action come out of that if possible. Mm. And then there's also sympathetic joy where we're connecting with the other people's happiness or celebrating mm moments of selflessness or moments of giving or moments of insight. And I think holding to looking at the suffering and being willing to open to that, it's important to also balance 
the the openings of heart <laughs> and mm. the courage and the and the fortitude mm. and that just everyday beauty around us and the mm. people going about their their day feeding their kids and all sorts of things that that we need to open to that wider field which is also part of it to then also have that nourishment to feel the compassion mm. And then balancing all of that, the way I think about it is the fourth, which is equanimity. And that's the wisdom piece, mm. the balance piece, mm. the seeing the cyclical nature, things arising, things falling, bigger picture, interconnectedness, and being able to find, a, 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 I like to call it the, the, the groundless ground mm. in that. Mm. By, by realizing how things change, how they're interconnected, um, that really uh, finding our place in that provides this much bigger field mm. where we're able to still step in and relate in a human way. Yeah. Yeah, I think there, I appreciate you sharing these four pieces. And, and um, you know, I have a sort of sense that like, any one of them on their own is both really potent and also potentially there's a, I don't know if this is the right word, sort of there's a snare or a catch there. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that if I let myself just really feel the compassion for all of the suffering, mm -hmm. I might lose myself in that and miss all of the, the fortitude and the strength that you're pointing to the courage and the selflessness. Mm -hmm. But if I sort of just want to focus on that, then I might mm -hmm. start to, become ignorant of the fact that there is suffering that needs action. And, and if I'm up in the, in the sort of groundless ground, just, Oh, everything passes. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. lose touch with the human in the moment experience of loss mm -hmm. or joy, the kind of mm -hmm. visceral aliveness. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I'm seeing you nod. Like how, how do you see these four pillars um, intertwining or interplaying? What is it like to, to, to bring them into your practice or into your right. way of being? Well, I think I think all of these, you know, you can you can line them up and say wisdom and compassion, or these different four, and holding them holding those divisions lightly, mm -hmm. because I think wisdom and compassion, um, you know, have traditionally been said like two two wings of the bird, mm -hmm. but they you need both to fly, but mm -hmm. also that they uh, they interweave with with each other. So as you open to the wisdom piece of, oh, actually, I'm not separate from you mm. in any mm. real way at all, mm. <laughs> except conventionally, mm. which we need to, then you realize, oh, wow, I, the compassion comes out of that, that connection. And then similarly, if you start to feel that compassion, that connection, that, that wishing for the suffering of others to be relieved, which I think is, is deep in us. Um, then you also feel like, oh, that person's not separate from me. Mm. And then you feel the wisdom piece of it. Mm. So they both, in one, you know, on one hand, they're, they're two sides supporting each other, but in a way they're the same thing um, if we really go deeply enough. And I think consciously bringing in wishes of compassion, opening, even if we can't do anything exactly to, end the suffering then there's some research suggesting that just just empathy like if you're simply feeling the pain of another that can really wear wear people down and a lot of burnout can come from that mm. but some suggestion that if you bring in this wish for that suffering to be relieved um again even if you you're not able to to realize that but just wishing that actually brings in much more sense of connection and lightness and is much more sustainable. Mm. 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 So for me, just in a you know practical way, um, I know a lot of people, it's like, do I, how much do I read the news and how much do I, da, da, da. and I found in the, the beginning of the conflict with Ukraine, I was reading the news a lot, like several yeah. times a day, and it got to be too much, just that stream because you're, mm. you're feeling somewhat traumatized with each news, but not being able to be there, being removed. Um, so finding that balance of staying connected, knowing mm. what's happening, trying to hear stories, you know, mm. trying to, to be of benefit in various ways, but also giving room for this wider, wider life 
uh, field mm. as well, mm. I think is important. Mm. Mm. There's something I'm in touch with. I can't, I don't quite have words for it. I'll just take a moment. The, the, the word that's coming, and I'm not sure what the question is yet, but the first word that's coming is emergence. Like, um, let me see if I can talk this through. There's, there's a way in which I can plug into a channel of news, let's say, and like, kind of like, and you know, get mm-hmm. overwhelmed with that and lose myself in that. There's also a way mm-hmm. in which I can turn that channel off and kind of avoid it and hide from it. Mm-hmm. But, but there's, there's something about um, kind of being aware of the both end and then sort of stepping back from it and just seeing what's there. Mm-hmm. Like what, mm-hmm. given, given what I happen to be seeing and what I happen to be afraid of and what I happen to be mm-hmm. drawn towards mm-hmm. in this moment, Mm-hmm. How do, what, how do, what am I called to do mm-hmm. uh, I, in this moment from where I sit in the body I'm in and the place I'm in and kind of like listening for guidance or, mm-hmm. or discerning what mm-hmm. to do or not do about all of the information that's flooding in. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that kind of, maybe we call that wise action. Like yeah, yeah, no, I love I, I love that, and I can feel your groundedness and and in your skill, and that you've also done a lot of inner work, I imagine, and so that you can tune in for yourself and like, oh, what is what am I feeling here? What's going on? And have have that balance and notice. But I have been experimenting some with the idea of uh, you know listening to the news or reading the paper as as a practice, mm, mm. because I notice when I am most unconscious. <laughs> What I tend to do is if I'm tired, I've been on the computer, I've been on email, and I'm not quite sure what the mechanism is, but it's almost like I want something to take me away, but it makes it worse. Then Mm -hmm. I'll go to the news, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I'm very depleted at that point, Mm -hmm. and it often brings me down further. Yeah. So a different way is to find a time where one's more resourced or conscious maybe settle, maybe sit, maybe bring in this compassion and then open Mm. to what's there. And then as you look at whatever story it is versus maybe just like glancing through all of them, you know, like really take that in, imagine Mm. that situation, wishing compassion, both for maybe, maybe the the victims and perpetrators, if that's the case, realizing the complexity of Mm. all of it. Mm. And what is that like? And Mm. then to maybe have a conscious closing and maybe there's some particular action that comes out of that Mm. but i think Mm. this is a way of interweaving um, or creating a practice container that's outside of the zendo Mm. Um, Mm. and and i think the the other thing for me is um sometimes i I just have compassion for the human condition that in a way not you know excusing moral responsibility but on the other hand how have we evolved (laughs) over the millennia to have certain patterns. And in a way, none of this is new. It's been around Mm. forever, these Mm. impulses, and um, they play out differently in the modern world. But to to say, oh, this is is part of the human race. Mm. This is part of how we evolved. If I just sort of zoom out and look at what is this animal species, humans, what are are their behaviors? What do they do? What Mm. (laughs) triggers them? What... Mm. You know, and just have compassion for, oh, yeah, they're working with some some, <laughs> have some great resources and some real limitations there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. and so if you look at it that way, oh, how does the human animal, and if we can't evolve, and if we can't, if we don't in a way have time to evolve biologically, mm-hmm. to kind of meet our modern mm-hmm. situation, can, can mm-hmm. some of these practices help us evolve consciously? Mm-hmm. That's the way I like That's I think beautiful. something I like to play with. Yeah, I'm really I've never actually heard someone express quite that way that sort of um if we bring time into the picture alongside evolution, like biological evolution works in spans of millennia and tens mm-hmm. of millennia and hundreds of millennia. Um, but there's that there's some evidence that that you know, worst case scenarios for us in our future, like we're working on the order of one or two millennia, or or depending on what what metric you're using and what you mean by collapse, like one century, you know, like there's some really small time horizons that we're potentially looking at, and they may, you know, I want to also presence like the there's there's 
some data that shows actually we have more time or less. And, and so there's not like a, there's no one who knows the future, mm-hmm. um, but we're, we're aware of our, as a species, I sense we're more aware of our mortality and fragility than we've ever mm-hmm. had to be in the past. And, and that time pressure comes in. How, how do we evolve if we mm-hmm. don't have the advantage of being able to let nature sort us out over the next 50 to a hundred thousand years, how, what, mm-hmm. what, what actions can we take? And, and what I hear you saying is that, well, maybe just, maybe there are some, some lineages and wisdom traditions that have shown us forms or practices mm-hmm. that, that may from afar look strange or different or hard or uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but, but up close actually allow for channeling of this wildness and this um, mm-hmm. energy that is ours to, mm-hmm. to live with and to mm-hmm. be with. And yeah, and that, you know, to, to just realize that we have a very natural sense of um, in-group, out-group, sense of self-protection, that, that's part of our lineage, <laughs> actually our evolutionary lineage, yeah. and that had certain purposes. And part of these practices and wisdom traditions are looking through that and realize, oh, but that's not really a solid, absolute thing. Mm. And in fact, we are much more connected or um, inter, we inter are, you know, some people say. And so that sense of, uh, and, and not just with each other, but with all of life. And so on one hand, um, I think these, these practices and wisdom traditions, you know, both, both intellectually, like, like, oh, okay, that makes sense, or even the science goes with it, but also the practicing of it so that mm-hmm. it becomes not mm-hmm. just an idea that you, mm-hmm. you sense it, you know, um, so that that's very important. Um, something I was going to say, and I lost my train of thought, but <laughs> I'll let you carry I, it on. I trust it will return if it feels Oh, 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 yes. yes. And I think this, for me, this is a more challenging idea just as a human being, <laughs> but I think it's, it's helpful as well that, uh, you know, in, in reading the book Sapiens and realizing, oh yeah, there've been 13 sapien species, if I remember correctly, and yeah. we're the only survivors. <laughs> yeah. We haven't really been around that long. Yes. That in a way, if we, if we can let go of our attachment to ourselves a little bit and realize, oh, we also are uh, an expression, a temporary expression. Mm. Of this mm. amazing life force mm. that is way, way, way beyond our conscious comprehension or time frame. Mm. So, how do mm. we show up as we are in this moment with all of our limitations, and know that you know, no matter what, at some point we're not going to be around, and yes. at some point the Earth isn't going to be around. Yeah. Right? And th- this is where I think Buddhist practice is really, really helpful. That sense it says that everything that's that's conditioned or compound or you know all these things have to come together for us to exist for the earth to exist everything like that is really ever-changing and only temporary Mm. Mm. and if we really live with that if we really Mm. open to that you know the for me buddhism's helpful in that it's you know they talk about the middle way Mm. so the extremes are um you know on one hand reification Things are solid. They're separate. They're going to be here forever. I am me. I'm going to be forever. And on the other end, if you start to question that, the danger is you get flipped over to nihilism Mm. and like nothing matters. Nothing's Mm. here. Nothing Mm. exists. Mm. Step back, give up. Mm. And it's, it's like mm, somewhere in the middle there, (laughs) 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 like like it's not going to be solid, stable, separate, you know, here forever. But at the same time, it's this amazing unfolding and yeah. dance. Yeah. And how do we dance our dance mm. and know that, that we, we are of the dance and the dance is ever changing? Mm. Mm. God, I'm so, I'm so glad you, glad you, you uh, captured that thought line because it's mm. just like sparking mm. a lot in me right now, a lot of joy and playfulness and possibility and and there's something in, and in, in maybe just maybe, uh, even as we embrace our uh, our sort of cosmic impermanence, mm. um, there is there is, and we kind of glimpse some of the 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 parts of our condition that you have that you've named and have compassion for about in group out group and 
the violence that can come with that and those patterns, there is also something about us being able to, to notice that we're dancing Mm-hmm. And notice that mm-hmm. the dance is happening mm-hmm. and uh, participate, like consciously participate mm-hmm. in the dance and the, and the, like offering new forms to the dance that, mm-hmm. that at least for the time we're here, whether it's 10,000 or a hundred thousand or a million, which still is a blink of an eye cosmically mm-hmm. in that time, there's this chance to not just be danced by the dance. Mm-hmm maybe, or to let the dance dance us more fully, maybe. And like, that's just, I'm like excited about that right now. Someone told me once, you know, homo sapiens were actually homo sapiens sapiens. So sapiens coming from saber to know. So not just knowing, but knowing that we know. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And this is, this seems to be the, the evolution of the universe that, that we have this ability. So I, you, know, you could even think of the the universe becoming conscious of itself, yeah. you know, yeah. through us. And yeah. who knows what is our role to play in that? Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. But but I think anytime we we think of humans as separate, separate from the environment, separate from each other, separate from animals, separate from mm. the cosmos, separate from, you know, that, that something's it's uh, our tendency, and that's natural. But it's it's. Um, it's much more realistic when we when we realize we're we're part of this very alive fabric. Mm. And mm. part of my personal practice is to just to try to open more and more in a felt con- mental but also felt sense to the aliveness all around me and of which I'm a part. Mm. And mm. You know, I think there are various traditions closer closer to the land that this may become much more naturally and have been preserved. But for me, I'm having to re in some way. Like I knew that from childhood, mm. and I respond to being in nature. But even in a cityscape, you know, how can we really open to that this this fabric of aliveness? Mm. Mm. That's always there. Yeah. Can you say more about uh, what those practices look like for you? Um, well, in yeah. a very practical way, it's simply trying to get out in nature every day. Mm. But in a way, returning to a, some an instinct I had as a child, which was to go maybe out in the woods or something and just sit down and be quiet. Mm. <laughs> and, mm. and not even formal meditation, but just opening and allowing and feeling how that changes me. I actually did that right before this call. Oh, cool. <laughs> there are a couple of beautiful bay trees and I love to go and I just sat there and I could feel I'd been on the computer way too much. And I just felt like almost like being held like a mother's by a mother's arms, like mm. limbically. Mm. And then I, I love all the research that's coming out in books for the, our Western mind of, um, of how alive the trees are and how they mm. communicate mm. and reading like, Oh, it's probably more accurate to think of them more like animals than like inert objects. And, and you know, and again, for many cultures, this is not new, but I, I love that this is coming out into consciousness. And so rewriting my story of how I see the world to include this, um, uh, really noticing the trees around me. Like if I if I played a mind experiment of like, okay, that's if I thought of that tree more like an like an animal or a conscious being, how would I yeah. relate? Yeah. Playing playing with that a little bit. And then even in my meditations, um, or even just standing, there's a sense I can get very, very narrow focused of my own mind, body, etc. But if I stop and I consciously expand my awareness up, down, and around, almost like putting out kind of antenna. Like, oh, what's out? What's what's the alive? What's what? Where are the insects? Where are the animals? The other mm. people? The mm. you know, the, mm. the carbon dioxide and oxygen with the trees? Like everything's just buzzing, right? And I don't exactly tap into the buzzing, but I kind of do. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's subtle, but it uh, it's like, oh, right. All right. This is happening all the time. And I'm so blind most of the time. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. I'm even just in it a bit. I think in a sense you are too. There's, you know, I'm in a, a, a sort of finished basement so that, so actually I can put my hand on the wall and on the other side of this wall, there's soil. Right. And in that soil is just teeming 
Right. Just absolutely teeming. And then at the same time, I can hear my daughter playing upstairs. I can't quite hear what she's saying, but I can hear her right. voice and the sound of footsteps. Yeah. And yeah. And then I can look up out the window and see the trees moving in the wind. And just, it's like, it, it's almost like in a very pleasurable way, almost too much, you know, it's yeah. just like, whoa. Yeah. And even that wall, like, where did that come from? Yeah. The history of that wall, right? <laughs> yes. You know, there's almost yeah. the word ancestors also comes up here too. Like, yes. well, yeah, there's, there's, yeah. You know, the tree that's led to the staircase over there in my, my mm. place. Like, oh yeah, that was a tree. Mm. I can still kind of feel that the tree mm. is a little bit. Mm. You know, mm. you know I'm, I'm, this is really beautiful. Thanks for that. And, mm-hmm. and a part of me is sort of like, and scene, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, okay, we've sort of, so I'll name that, but also there's just maybe one more as we mm-hmm. start to approach about an hour of conversation, which is around the time in which they usually play with folks. Um, you know, there's one more line of curiosity that I'm, that I would w- love to presence with us and play with today, which is this, um, it kind of connects to what happened, what I was interpreting as happening for you as the letting go of the path only to pick up the path later mm-hmm. in a new way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, when I think about the conversation we're having at the macro level here about our society mm-hmm. and the planet and the human mm-hmm. condition, you pointed out that there's some emerging scientific knowledge, which we might sort of kind of codify as, um, a newer way of relating to the world and a newer Mm -hmm. way of thinking about the world that has produced a lot of the separation that we're talking about, right? Like Mm -hmm. science has allowed us to split an atom and to take a tree and turn Mm -hmm. it into planks and sort of all of these, you know, the sort of earliest technologies all the way through to the most sort of advanced that we are Mm -hmm. around us now, there's an argument to be made for the way that can enhance separation, like Mm -hmm. getting lost in the news, for instance. Mm But there seems to be a, um, kind of a, a circular energy in there mm-hmm. and that as the science gets more and more advanced, uh, physicists and, and biologists and, and others are kind of bumping up against the, the evidence mm-hmm. of the ancient knowledge that we, mm-hmm. oh, the tree is alive and interconnected mm-hmm. and I'm breathing its chemicals and it's breathing mine mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's talking, it's letting the other tree next to it mm-hmm. know that I'm here. And, mm-hmm. oh, like, and, and as you said, like, oh, some people have known that for, for mm-hmm. a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So I guess the kind of thing I'm playing with is, is there is uh, there's something about our analytical mind that both mm-hmm. takes us out, but also mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is the thing that can look back and, and right. have this in conversation we're having. And I, right. and I wonder what your relationship to the role the analytical mind mm-hmm. is meant to play in all of these, the work that you do or where, mm-hmm. where it sits in the bigger picture. Um, mm-hmm. Because sometimes I hear language mm-hmm. like, oh, it's the monkey mind. You've got to turn it mm-hmm. off. You've got to mm-hmm. just ignore it, shut it down. And, and that doesn't like, it mm-hmm. feels like that's not quite right. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, so there's something in even analysis that can produce magic. And I wonder how you relate to that. My, my mind's going all sorts of ways. So I'm trying to hold on to the different. Okay. Okay. <laughs> different Sorry. Yeah. It's like, that's a very rich question. So yeah, on one hand, monkey mind, that kind of rumination where we just kind of get caught up in our stories often about yeah. past and future centered on us. And some sense that that tends to not make us very happy. Yes. <laughs> so yes. on one hand, like letting, like seeing through that, letting go of that, having, even though, though it comes up, having some space with that. Um. And often, you know, uh, in Zen, there's, you know, they talk about think of not, think of not thinking uh, and uh, simply like just sitting. But then I remember uh, at some point, I believe I, I heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama say, you know, from the Tibetan tradition, think, think, think. <laughs> and I was so relieved <laughs> that there is a, a role for this analytical side. And in fact, um, Kind of a, a model that's that I found helpful too. I heard once is like three levels of wisdom. So on one mm. hand, you're hearing teachings, you're hearing things. Maybe you're hearing the science, you're hearing lots of things, and then you look at it yourself and you turn it around and you poke at it and kick the tires and like, does this mm. make sense? Does it make sense mm. for me? Does it fit with my experience, etc.? And then you sit with it, 
you let that go and you let it let it come in on a different level, a different level of knowing. And so those things go around and around and around. So, um, so, so yes, for the role of the, the thinking analytical mind. And, and it's only, I think, a piece, a piece of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and the science, you know, I know we haven't even really touched into, you know, teaching mindfulness, et cetera, in the wider secular world, but it's, uh, it's been a real gateway for people. And, uh, you know, as I've learned to present what science is out there, just to be very humble of like, it's all brand new. <laughs> We're learning more things now because we have better measuring equipment, right? And that's part of the humility. Oh, science says it's not scientific, but suddenly you can measure more than you could before. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. So realizing that science itself, you know, and this is said with a lot of respect for the scientific method. But it itself is a story, is human created, is affected by, you know, what, what research grants get funded, you know, that, that, that to, to hold that with some humility too, and to uh, keep that sense of wonder and possibility as that unfolds. And if science hasn't gotten to it, or the research hasn't been funded yet, nevertheless, like, oh, in your own experience, as you open to the world, what do you... Mm experience mm. and appreciating people who are who are uh you know like, like uh, brian swim and journey of the universe really trying to create a, a fuller story that includes the the myth the human and and the science of where who what what's going on here right now <laughs> yeah. to the best of our knowledge <laughs> yeah yeah you mentioned that like this uh the research and the practice can be a gateway for people mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. haven't been um raised in a context that you've been raised in or called into context mm-hmm. that you've been called in mm-hmm. you know and i sense that that's a big part of your dharma work is to kind of like okay here's my community of practice and i want to share that but also here's the wider world uh mm-hmm. here's an organization here's an individual who mm-hmm. may not necessarily be called to to join um mm-hmm. the zendo and do the practice but still there's something there that i want to offer them mm-hmm. and i wonder maybe maybe that's a nice place for us to land is is to just speak to what are some of the doors that you've seen to open for uh, folks who from a distance might not look like they're walking a spiritual path, but have like drank a bit from this well and decided they want to find a way to weave it in and intertwine it with their lives. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking even within the, the Buddhist tradition, the sense there's a phrase of um, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. That sense of like mm. all these different gate gate mm. gates in or upaya mm. skillful means, and uh, the you know the root of dharma is like uh, just like law or just how things are. <laughs> if I really look at reality, what's going on here? So apart from any religious take, mm. you know that there are mm. different ways into exploring mm. what you know what this what this means. But I definitely you know working in different um, tech companies, for example. Just hearing people say, you know, I I would not have showed up for this class, except I, you know, I heard that, oh, there's some science behind it. So that for me as an engineer, say, mm. makes that quote safe, mm. right? It mm. makes it, I, mm. I, that fits with my identity as a mm. scientific, rational person mm. to check this out. Mm. And then maybe in the checking it out, it's like, oh, yeah, that's all there. And, oh, there's this whole experiential sense that I didn't really have before. And mm-hmm. then it kind of the path goes on in that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. I've been very appreciative of that gate, of that yeah. gate opening. And not again, not to reify it, but it's it's a useful gate. Yeah. yeah. And if you could sort of speak to, you know, there are folks who are, who are listening to this, who, are, who will be listening to this at some point, who might be at that first, like, I'm going to, I'm stepping a toe. All right, I'll show up to this workshop because something, whether it's um, the science or a friend or a curiosity or a need, there's something that's getting me to this chair for the first mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you, is there something you'd want to say to them or offer them or something that you have in the past when you speak to those groups that feels really important as a, as an invitation for someone who feels like, oh, I'm only a beginner and 
and I, and I want to get started, but I don't quite know how. I think we all may have our moments of uh, hearing something inside, and sometimes it's a very small voice, <laughs> and maybe we interpret it simply as, I'm just way too stressed, I need to chill mm. out, or mm. maybe it's a little deeper of like, oh, what, there's something alive here, but I don't really know what this is. And uh, my encouragement is it's so easy to pass that by. And that if you hear that invitation or that moment of curiosity of like, what is that? Mm. To mm. nurture that, to give that a little mm. space and without any pressure of it having to look one way or another. But if you, st- whatever door happens to be open or even like open a little bit of a crack, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, whatever, you know, whatever environment you're around or book or online thing, whatever it may be, just uh, like to trust your own inner wisdom mm. that there's mm. something there asking mm. for attention. And mm. uh, mm. I doubt where that thread goes. Beautiful. Thanks, Meg. Mm. I, I, if you still care to read it, you, you've, I understand you brought a poem and I'm hoping we could close that with that poem. But before we do. To, yeah. Maybe we could just, for folks who are listening, you could just speak to, if they want to learn more about Stone Creek or about your work, where where should they go yeah, to? Sure. So you can learn about my work. And I, I also work with leaders, especially leaders who already have a mindfulness or meditation practice, but really want to use this as a base mm. work in the world. And so there's a website, meglevy.com. And then also this Zen Center that I'm stepping into, it's, it's been around for some time, but we're, we're entering a new phase, mm. and that is stonecreekzen.org, mm. stonecreekzen.org. Mm. And I'm hoping to have both a local presence in Sonoma County in the Bay Area, but also wider offerings uh, online as well. Yeah. And just I'll also let folks know that there are some lovely recent Dharma talks that you've given that mm. go deeper into some of material and you can find those on youtube too Mm -hmm. thank you this has been really fun meg i feel in touch with the aliveness energy (laughs) thank you for presencing that it's uh, been really fun for me and it's it's because of your presence and invitation you know mm, so thank mm. you for holding the space inviting the space and sharing Mm, the space mm, yeah thank you and does it feel all right to to close with a poem then is i I would i would love this so this is a poem i sometimes uh sometimes comes to me at the end of talks, and as we were starting to think about today, I thought, mm, I might want to read this. Uh, so this is a, a poem by Rumi. It says, the breezes at dawn have secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Thanks, Meg. Thank you, Andy. Thanks to all of the ancestors and lineages that made this moment and so many other moments possible. And And for uh, all those who are to come as well. Yes, and for all those, thank you. Yes, beautiful. Okay, bye. All right, take care. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing and engineering services from Jim Serqua at Sump Pump Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact on the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement. United Nations Refugee Agency and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, 
I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now.